Good morning. It is my great joy to be with you this morning on Bible Monday as we keep digging into Philippians together. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you come into this place? Would you prepare us to be interrupted? Would you be active in between the words that you convict in my heart and in between the students and faculty and staff that are gathered here to listen? Would you be the translator between me and those you've called to this place? We lift up your holy and precious name this morning. Amen. This morning we're in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, uh, well, the first part of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 13. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out and read along with me. Paul writes, Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, clinging to what lies behind me, and meandering toward what lies ahead, I drift forward toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Drifting toward a goal. Doesn't that sound pleasant? You know, when I was a kid, I used to go to a uh, water park, and my favorite thing was the lazy river. You kind of meander into the water, just float around in a circle. Everybody gets their own inner tube, so if anybody gets too close, they just kind of bounce off. And you float around and around until eventually you reach, well, until you reach nothing. Because a lazy river is a circle. It has no purpose. It has no destination. It's not going anywhere. And if I thought about it, maybe the word lazy would have tipped me off that this isn't actually a very good analogy for the kingdom of God and our pursuit of it. So let's try this again. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Beloved, I did not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This picture of the Christian life is no lazy river. It's not an infinite loop of inactivity that gets us nowhere. It's linear. We have what lies behind that we're straining against. We have our present activity of straining and pressing on, and we have the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So as I've been simmering in this passage for a few months now, the question that kept coming to my mind was, what's the goal 
But even more, what are we straining against? To say that we're pressing on, to say that we're straining forward implies that there's something that's pulling us back. There's something that wants to keep us from getting to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's start with that goal. If we don't understand the goal, then we don't understand the purpose of straining against whatever it is that lies behind us. Paul says the goal is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this basically sums up what Paul said in verses 8 through 11. He says, more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The call of God is to know Christ. Not to know about Christ, not to intellectually understand who Christ is, but to relationally know Christ, to know Christ so deeply that we become like him. As we learned in chapter two, we have the mind of Christ. This is the goal, to have the mind of Christ. And why is that the goal? Simply because, as Paul says in verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ has claimed us, Christ has adopted us into his family, and the only appropriate response is to become like Christ. But we don't become like Christ by drifting and meandering in the general direction of Christ-likeness. We become like Christ by identifying what lies behind us and then straining against those things that hold us back from Christ-likeness. Now, there's lots of different things that hold us back from Christ-likeness. Paul talks about different sins or inclinations or tendencies. Uh, Throughout his letters, uh, different things come up But in this passage, what he's talking about as the thing that lies behind him is his past efforts to justify himself. Paul explains that he used to consider himself superior to others. He condemned people who did not meet his definition of righteousness. And the basis for this superiority that he thought he had was, first of all, his religious and ethnic identity, and second, his exacting attention to the Jewish law. So we go back to verse 5. Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. 
Now, all this is is a basic description of Paul's ethnic and religious identity. It has absolutely nothing to do with Paul's own actions. He didn't choose what family he would be born into. He certainly didn't ask his parents to have him circumcised. He was just following the Jewish law. That's what you did. But somehow, Paul came to believe that simply because he'd been born to this particular tribe, that automatically qualified him as righteous. Just being born with this specific ethnic identity, and he's a cut above everyone else. So when Paul warns the Philippians against having confidence in the flesh, which he starts the passage with, in this case, he's not talking about flesh as a euphemism for sin. He's talking about actual flesh, the skin that we inhabit, the things, uh, the characteristics that we're born with, circumcised or uncircumcised flesh distinctive fleshly characteristics that identified him and his tribe as righteous before God and excluded everyone who didn't share those same fleshly characteristics and made people easily identifiable as either part of the household of God or having no place in the household of God. Now, this is especially significant because uh, in verse 2, Paul warned the Philippians against those who mutilate the flesh, which was a warning against Jewish Christians who believed that Gentiles needed to become Jewish in the flesh before they could become Christian. These people were called Judaizers, and they maintained that Hebrew ethnicity was a prerequisite for fellowship in the body of Christ. This is an issue that Paul dealt with many times throughout his ministry. It comes up in a lot of his letters. And when this question arises, do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become Christian? Paul's answer consistently is no. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek meaning fleshly distinctions between people no longer have any bearing on people's opportunity to know Christ. But saying that those distinctions don't matter doesn't mean that Jews and Gentiles just automatically started treating one another with Christ-like love. If they had, this wouldn't be a conflict that arises so often. You see, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were not only different, they were actually ceremonially unclean. So a Jewish Christian should not associate with a Gentile. They shouldn't sit at the same table and share a meal with a Gentile. This is a deeply ingrained hurdle that they have to get over in order to build the fellowship of Christ together as Jews and Gentiles. They have to strain against that desire to separate. Say, the Jewish Christians go here and the Gentile Christians go here. Even that that impulse... They're raised this way, the Jews, to say that Gentiles are unclean. It's not just 
an idea that they thought of that now they can discard. It is so deeply ingrained in their being and their understanding of how the world works that they can't just stop doing it. They have to strain against it actively every day. And when Paul is communicating to the churches that are having this conflict, his solution is never to do the thing that's going to make everyone comfortable. It's not, okay, well, maybe we should have a church for the Gentile Christians and a church for the Jewish Christians. Or maybe we should have a service for the Gentile Christians and then a separate service for the Jewish Christians. Or maybe when we have our love feast, when we celebrate communion, there should be a table for the Jewish Christians and a table for the Gentile Christians. No. He does not care whether it makes people uncomfortable to be in fellowship with each other. He does not tell them to retreat to their comfort zones. He tells them to abandon the very idea that there ought to be a comfort zone in the first place. So rather than retreating to the place where they kind of know where they fit in, they're called to abandon that place abandon that comfort zone for the sake of pursuing Christ together as one body. So circumcision isn't exactly the fleshly issue that most American Christians wrestle with today, which may lead us to excuse ourselves from Paul's injunction that ethnic identity has no bearing on righteousness. I said, well, of course it doesn't. I never thought it did. Why would it possibly have any bearing on that? Nevertheless, in a thousand overt and subtle ways, we demonstrate that we seek our own comfort by drifting toward the people who are most like us. When I say us, I don't mean people who look like me. I mean all of us who are gathered in this room whatever the facts of your birth are. We drift toward the relationships that make us comfortable. We drift toward the relationships that are defined by these fleshly, external things where we think we're less likely to run into any kind of tension or disagreement or cultural misunderstanding. But Paul didn't instruct the Christians at Philippi to merely step away from that a little bit every now and then. We like to talk about stepping out of our comfort zones. Actually, I don't like talking about it because I really like my comfort zone. Right? You might too. But we like to talk about our comfort zones as if we kind of dip our toe outside of our comfort zone a little bit and then quick retreat Retreat to the safe place. But Paul didn't tell them to take a moment and try to step outside your comfort zone. Paul said, abandon the comfort zone altogether. We strain against the impulse to define who is in and who is out on the basis of fleshly characteristics. And we strain toward the goal of knowing Christ together. When our pursuit of Christ is in the company of people who all look just like us, 
we may start to confuse our culture or ethnicity or tribe or nation or language or politics with the heart of the gospel. And when people see groups of Christians who all seem to come from the same culture and ethnicity and class, it's easy to get the impression that, well, if, if I don't fit what I see in this group of people, then there must not really be a place for me in that fellowship. A former student of mine is working on starting a church plant uh, in another part of the country. And he recently told me that when he pictures in his mind's eye that church in the future, thriving, full of people, he realized that what he pictures is a church full of people who look just like him. He started to do some hard thinking and ask some difficult questions about why that is. What is it about his experience of the Christian faith that limits his imagination about what the Christian fellowship actually looks like in an ideal world? That tendency to gravitate toward people who are like us, it's a symptom of original sin. And if we don't actively press against that, then we choose to live into sin instead of living into the mind of Christ. Now, my excuse for gravitating toward people who were like me, back when I lived in dorms, seven years in dorms between college and seminary, uh, my excuse was, well, I'm an introvert. I become friends with the people who are around, and the people who live around me happen to all look like me and come from the same socioeconomic background. I'm nice to everybody, but I naturally make friends with people with whom I share a lot in common. And all of that was true. It's completely true. But the reason it was true was because I had drifted toward a fellowship defined by fleshly similarities instead of straining toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In a fellowship that had no real or perceived ethnic or cultural prerequisites. I'm still learning to strain toward what is ahead instead of drifting back to those limitations and excuses. Abandoning comfort zones requires daily intentionality. It takes more than smiling and saying hi as we walk past each other. It means choosing to dedicate time and energy to building relationships. When we do it, we discover that the external differences actually enrich our fellowship and draw us more deeply into knowing Christ who has laid hold of us. We have the choice each day to either drift toward our comfort zones or to strain against the very idea of comfort zones for the sake of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now Paul continues talking about what was behind him in verse 6. It says, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Here Paul's explaining his own efforts to achieve righteousness according to a Pharisaic interpretation of the law. So the Pharisees were so passionate about the law that they actually set up additional laws to avoid even getting close to violating the heart of the law. They set up these wider and wider boundaries, making it harder and harder to actually follow all those rules, plant themselves inside those boundaries and say, everyone who doesn't fit within this interpretation of the law is not only lesser, but maybe doesn't actually have access to God at all. Now, Paul was so certain that he was right about the law that he persecuted Christians because of their violations of it. And he wasn't just a bystander in this. Acts 9 tells us Saul, which is Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's actively pursuing Christians. Now, Paul's persecution wasn't motivated only by hate. It's rather this misplaced zeal. He truly believed that he was doing what the law required of him. He really believed that he thought he was being a good Jew by clearly separating out everyone who wasn't a Pharisee. And it took Jesus literally knocking him to the ground and blinding him for a few days for him to realize that he was wrong. It wasn't being right that made him righteous. It was faith in Christ that made him righteous. Now, by the time Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he's come to realize that all of this fleshly righteousness is worthless. Zeal for truth is life-giving when it's directed toward the way, the truth, and the life. But zeal is deadly when it's directed toward proving that I am right and that someone else is wrong. Paul thought being right was the key to righteousness. But he's telling the Philippians the goal isn't being right. The goal is having the mind of Christ. So this is part of the past that Paul is straining against, a past where his passion for the law, the passion for being right, held him back from pursuing true righteousness. Now, we might find it easy to excuse ourselves from Paul's warning about this deadly zeal. After all, I'm a Christian, so why would I be persecuting Christians? I follow Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law, so I'm not a Pharisee trying to add to the law. Then again, when we look around, it isn't hard to recognize a tendency to build up these artificial boundaries that exclude people who don't agree with us. That's endemic to human nature. We prefer clear, well-defined boundaries so that we can unequivocally say that I am here, I am safe, I, with, I am within the bounds, 
and you are outside. You need to be put in your place over there, physically far away from me so that I don't have to deal with your wrongness. We like these boundaries because we like to be able to say that we are righteous, we are correct, you are wrong and must be set apart over there, somewhere else. This is a symptom of original sin, and if we don't actively strain against it, we passively drift back toward division and divisiveness and self-righteousness. We encourage this kind of deadly zeal. When we've drifted long enough into that desire to be right, we can actually delude ourselves into thinking that our enthusiastic self-righteousness is actually good, is actually life-giving, is actually having the mind of Christ. If we don't strain against that, our whole picture of what it means to be a Christian gets distorted. So what does this kind of deadly zeal look like for Christians today? Well, it looks like clinging to our own understanding and resisting the possibility that we might have more to learn. It looks like throwing up our defenses when we encounter a new idea or a challenging thought or someone who disagrees with us. We pack ourselves down into a bunker and then just hurl darts over our fortress. We mischaracterize the other view. We use hateful words and names. We set up false arguments that we can easily knock down, all so that we don't have to consider the possibility that we might be wrong. It looks like packing in all these additional requirements to what it means to be a Christian. Say, if you are a Christian, you like this type of music, your church does things this way, you have these political opinions, you use this kind of language, and now we've added a whole layer of requirements based on flesh, based on personal preference. Also, we can say, I'm in and you're out. We gather around the people who have the same idea about all that additional stuff, surrounded by people who think the same way, and then we encourage each other and prepare for battle together. Or you might take a less aggressive approach. Maybe you don't have a desire to debate and fight with people about these things, so instead of that, you just seethe and disgust in your mind. You nourish that rejection that pushes you away from others. In our determination to prove that we are right, we lose sight of the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. So how do we strain against this zeal that brings death? I suggest that we turn to wonder. Instead of asking how to defend our positions and destroy the other person, what if we asked, I wonder? I wonder why she believes that. Instead of, how could anyone possibly believe that? I wonder why he feels that way. 
instead of he's just being oversensitive. I wonder if they may be onto something there instead of, well, I haven't experienced it, so it must not really exist. What if I'm not seeing something? Instead of, why are they making such a big deal out of nothing? I wonder if I might be wrong about this. Instead of, how could anyone possibly disagree with me on this? A few years ago when I attended an event uh, led by a Christian organization where I knew that I didn't really agree with most of the speakers or the other participants. I wanted to attend this event because I wanted to understand how and why fellow Christians held convictions that differed from my own on issues I actually care a great deal about. There were moments during that event when I felt flashes of anger and frustration, but I chose to turn to wonder. I wondered how we could read the same Bible and come to such different interpretations. I wondered how we could care so much about the same issue, but come to completely different conclusions about how to address it. And instead of listening for my opportunity to make a counter-argument, I just listened, and I asked questions. Now, at the end of that event, I did not change my opinion, but my opinions are now much better informed. More importantly, I did change my opinion about those Christians with whom I disagreed. I loosened my grip on my own self-righteousness, and I learned that we can pursue the mind of Christ together while having dynamic conversations and sharing our differences. Now, Paul didn't reduce his zeal when he became a follower of Christ, but his zeal was seasoned with love, love for God and love for neighbor. It's clear throughout his letters that when he's addressing uh, these conflicts that are going on in different churches, he's doing that with an understanding of the complexity of the issue. He's heard from different sides. He urges people to get along. He urges people to follow Christ. But he, he knows what's going on. He knows what the problem really is. So turning to wonder doesn't mean accepting or excusing every position or everything that someone believes. It doesn't mean abandoning the idea of absolute truth or creating moral equivalencies where there are none. It doesn't mean that every position or opinion is equally compatible with the mind of Christ. But it does mean understanding and thoughtfully considering the entire context and multiple perspectives before drawing conclusions and acting on those conclusions, especially in ways that exclude or condemn. Now, that requires intentionality. That requires straining against the much easier action of simply deciding that I am right and refusing to hear any other positions. We have to leave that kind of deadly zeal and defensive self-righteousness in the past and strain toward a righteousness that is based on faith in Christ.
And Paul continues, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Now, it's a mark of Christian maturity to be able to differentiate the goal of knowing Christ from the things we have to strain against in order to reach that goal. It's a mark of Christian maturity to strain forward to what lies ahead, being of the same mind. It's a mark of Christian maturity to have a conversation with me if I've said something that offended or upset you, and I'll even buy the coffee. I'm serious about that. I drink a lot of coffee. So are you drifting towards self-righteousness? Or are you straining ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Are you drifting back to your comfort zone? Or are you abandoning your comfort zone for the sake of reaching the upward call of God in Christ Jesus together? It's my hope and, our, and my prayer for this community that we will strain forward together. Will you press on with me? You are dismissed.